You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. What goes into that billable rate that your company is making off of you? Why are you getting paid $15 an hour, but they're charging $50 per hour? We tackle these questions and more and break down the billable rate and all that goes into it today on the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 120, that's 120, for September 27th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. This is the show where we break down the details behind issues in professional archaeology, mostly in the United States, and pull back the veil on the behind-the-scenes workings of a typical company. So, break out your pay stub and pitchforks, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Bill in California. Good morning. Doug in Scotland. Hello. Stephen in Calgary. Hello. And Sonia in Utah. Good morning. So as uh, Hurricane Irma ravages Florida coast as we're talking about this, um, luckily none of us are in the path of the hurricane, so we can keep recording this content, this uh, podcast. But we do we do have a lot of friends and colleagues that are down there, so I just wanted to say hopefully um, everybody got out okay. And as again, as this is airing, it's all over now, so hopefully everything went well. But um, uh, but we have no idea since we're in the midst of it right now. We're recording on uh, September 10th in the morning as it's. Uh, made landfall in Key West. So, but anyway, what we're going to talk about today is uh, billable rates, as I mentioned in the introduction. So, and the reason for that is because we 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 frequently mention some of these things. Uh, we frequently mention billable rates. We frequently mention uh, different positions and stuff like that within the field. And we thought that uh, when we were mentioning it last week, that we should have a podcast that really breaks down uh, what that means, uh, because I know. Myself, when I first started out as a field tech, I'm always I've always been kind of a big skeptic, so I never really uh, take anything at face value, <laughs> which which is handy. Um, but I remember hearing people say uh, before I was aware of what was going on, and and I, I was never really aware of this in other industries. Although I know this happens in pretty much every field on the planet. Um, you know, you're you're paid one thing, but you're charged another thing to the client because because what you do pays for everything else, and that's essentially a billable rate. But I remember talking about uh, talking to people when I was, you know, first new in this field, saying, "Oh, the the company's getting seventy five dollars an hour for me, and I'm only getting twelve fifty. You know, this is highway robbery. Why can't they pay me more?" And uh, and in some cases, they probably could have paid you more. I, I'm not going to lie about that. But what we're going to break down is why are they charging seventy five dollars an hour for uh, for you. And why are you only getting however much you're getting? You know, and, and of course, all these numbers fluctuate depending on the company and the region you're working in, and uh, and in some cases, the agency you're working for, and when some places uh, set the rates for different things. So, anyway, let's uh, let's let's break this down a little bit. Um, Sonia is going to be uh, heavy in this conversation because she is uh, she's she's literally written the book on business and archaeology, but it's, nobody knows about it yet. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, keep it on the down low. I know, I know, and uh, and just so you guys know as well, um, we might have some in and out and some weird audio from Bill. Hopefully not. He's uh, currently trying to wake his, make his way through a, a a crazy festival in Berkeley to his office, <laughs> so he's on his phone. <laughs> Stay safe, Bill. Um, so I will. I'll do my best. Yeah, there you go. So Sonia, what? Uh, let's let's start breaking this down. Uh, what first? Let's just define billable rate. What does that even mean for people who are brand new in this field and don't know anything about it? So a, a billable rate is what we like to call. Uh, we as management like to call direct labor. So a direct labor is essentially what you uh, bill to a client. So uh, when you're out working on a project you're getting a certain amount of money as your base wage, but the, but the employer uh, that, that you work for is actually billing you to the client for a specific, at a specific rate. Sometimes it's $35 an hour. Sometimes it's $60 an hour. Sometimes it's $150 an hour. We just never, we just never know depending on whether, what our billable rate is going to be until we're working for the company that we work for. Huge companies have really high billable rates very small companies like mine uh, or like Chris's, um, we have much smaller billable rates. Mm -hmm. uh, they're much lower. So a billable rate is, it, it basically includes your base wage, all the taxes, 
that you pay, that the company pays, the company pays on their, their profit at the end of the year, insurance, and that includes any, uh, any health and welfare benefit that you may receive, any, um, uh, any other benefits that you might receive, like your health insurance or uh, your, um, your investment plans if you get them. Um, it can also include, uh, it, 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 it does also include insurance like liability and auto insurance and uh, professional errors and omissions insurance, which is what professionals have to uh, get in order to give our consulting services to our clients. Um, any, any, any other liability, workers' compensation insurance, um, uh, unemployment, um, all of that is incorporated into into that billable rate. Additionally, you've got indirect expenses like indirect labor. Let's start with indirect labor. So what's indirect? Well, for every hour you work, a small portion of what your, what your uh, billable rate is going toward lawyers for the company, um, the, uh, the accountants uh, that um, pay, your, pay your bills. Mm -hmm. Indirect expenses uh, might be... Um, uh, might be things like your computer, the equipment you use in the field, like the shovels and the and the screens and the GPS units and digital cameras, the trucks, the vehicles, maintaining those vehicles, um, tablets, um, facility costs. If your company has a facility, um, if they reimburse you for cell phone use, all of these things fall into um, fall into your overhead rates. Some of these things can be direct expenses or direct uh, labor, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. So at the very, very end of all of that, that list that I just provided is profit. And profit, say you're, you're billing out at, you know, 35 to $40 an hour, profit can be as little as nothing mm -hmm. or as much as whatever the company has negotiated with the client. So uh, you had a question, Chris? Yeah, I was wondering is uh, and I, I don't I don't think you mentioned this in in those that have breakdown of what this very complicated topic is, but per diem per diem is often seen as as different things. Is that calculated in your billable rate when when people think about that, or is that outside of your billable rate? Per diem is generally outside of your billable uh, billable rate. Right. Uh, per diem is not a taxable uh, is not a, a, a taxable benefit to you. So, for example, if your company decides to include uh, uh, your per diem on your, your paycheck, that should be exempt from any taxation. Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's not, then you go, need to go talk to your HR uh, representative right away. Mm -hmm. um, per diem is separate. It is, um, it is a, a, by law, um, a, a separate item. Okay. So, and it is, and it it should be uh, directly reimbursed to you or paid to you. Yeah, and and I only mentioned that because I've heard people ask about that before. And uh, the the big project I did that I've mentioned many times on multiple shows uh, in California a couple of years ago. My God, when I when I calculated out the project costs and then the per diem costs associated with that, just seeing that per diem number separate for eight months for eight people <laughs> at a hundred and I think it was 115 a day. The Navy actually set the rate for us for that day. Um, it was uh, it was amazing. It was huge. Um, the the amount of per diem that was, and and if we broke all these things down, it would be um, you know just to see them out separately. We don't typically do that as project managers and people writing these bids. We 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 get whatever our you know whatever accounting tells us. You generally in the bigger companies what that billable rate is, and we use that to build a bid for a project. Um, but we don't often really know exactly what those numbers break down to, especially the bigger the company. I'd say the less likely anyone in your department really knows what that breaks down to. Exactly. Uh, these, these things are all very sensitive. Um, billable rates and the way that they're broke down for companies are usually held within the upper management levels. Um, so your program directors, your project managers, and um, if you've got different offices, if your company's big enough to have different offices, uh, the, the office managers and, and, and those types of people will all know what the breakdowns are. But they're usually held in pretty strict confidence simply because um, they, are, uh, they are considered uh, confidential, uh, specific to a company. Yeah. So they're proprietary. Uh, so this isn't something that 
you know, you generally um, advertise, oh, this is how our billing rate breaks down. <laughs> I can give you rough estimates, just, you know, rough estimates. Uh, for example, uh, payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. Payroll taxes are going to vary by person, but you can kind of average it out in general. It, it, the reason it varies by person is because some people fall into lower tax uh, rates than others do, mm-hmm. depending on how much you get paid and how much you work. Um, but I like to say it uh, it generally falls between about 25 and 35 percent of of that uh, of what you of what your base wage is. So, for example, if you get paid $15 an hour, uh, 25% of that is going to be $3.75, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to add that $3.75 to the 15 so that the company can actually match what you as an employee pay for payroll taxes. That's your state and your federal taxes. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I can reasonably say based on the number of people that I, that I employ and the number of, of senior level people that I employ that most of our payroll taxes are probably going to be somewhere around 25 to 35%. Yeah. And it's, it's great that we're having this conversation too, because I'll tell you, uh, if you're thinking about starting a company, um, there's so many little things that people don't tell you, uh, that you don't know. And, and, and this is, this was one of them for me. Like I knew they were taxes, of course. I knew people paid taxes. I'm aware of taxes, but with all the hustle and bustle of starting something up, when I actually had my first payroll employee, and this was just one person a long time ago for like three weeks, I, I set up a payroll company because I knew that was one thing I didn't really want to tackle on my own. And when I submitted his hours to them and they submitted me back the value of the money I had to drop into my um, my payroll account, that's what they, they paid out of. I just moved from my checking account to my payroll account so they didn't have access basically to my full checking account um, for my business. But when they told me the number, like let's just use round numbers. Let's say he was getting paid $1,000 or something like that. That's what it worked out to, just multiplying his hours by his hourly rate. Um, they had me deposit like thirteen hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, man, your guys' fees are high, and they're like, um, taxes. Uh, oh shit, yeah, taxes. Yeah. Right, that exists. That's a thing people do. <laughs> what a lot of what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, you have taxes taken out, and your company pays those taxes. But did you know that your company doubles those taxes? So you may have a hundred dollars taken out of your paycheck, mm-hmm. but the company not only pays that one hundred dollars, they pay another one hundred dollars yeah. on top of that to pay your taxes. Yes. Yes. Everything is doubled. Yeah. So always always keep that in mind. And that was the that was the big shocker for me when uh, when I had like eight employees and they were all getting paid twenty dollars an hour. You know, my one biweekly payroll was was a massive number that had to be deposited into this checking account and then paid out. But luckily, that's why you hire specialists for these things. If you're going to run a company, um, you I mean, if you can handle it, great. But you're going to have so much other stuff to do. I just there's so many things that need to be filed. I just hired a payroll company. They cost me like what is it like fifty or sixty dollars every quarter or something like that? Uh, and uh, I mean, they're they're super cheap, but they get everything done and they file everything on time. So, um, Doug, you've got a comment. It was along the lines what you guys have been discussing now, and that's just to say also things like uh, Social Security. Mm-hmm. Um, that's coming out of your billable hours as well, and it's not just so you know differ between countries you go in, but in the UK it's called national insurance. Mm-hmm. And there's a, you know, employee's contribution and a employer's contribution. And that essentially comes out of your billable rates as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just another thing is basically if you're paying, it, it'll depend on, you know, what country you're in, what taxes. But if you're paying, you know, 6 10% on some sort of national retirement scheme, then your employer is probably matching that or paying double. And that comes out of your billable rates as well. Right. And that doesn't touch on, you know, if you have a pension scheme as well. So if, you know, your employer is paying, I don't or you're paying maybe 3%, 5% of your thing into some sort of 401k or, you know, something else, and you have some sort of employer matching, that matching, again, is coming out of your billable rates as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, pretty much everything should technically be coming out of that billable rate. Um, And we'll get into 
We'll get into a little bit more about how that's based on on what you're actually getting paid um, in in some cases directly related to what you're getting paid in some companies uh, like smaller ones and larger companies. The billable rate there's there's reasons to inflate the billable rate that are artificial that aren't related to um, overhead costs and we can get into that as well. Um, but after the break, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more about what goes into making that billable rate the actual number that it is and how that can be tied to your hourly rate or your salaried rate, which basically breaks down to an hourly rate. But also I want to talk about uh, ways that the um, the billable rate can be flexible. Like for one, one thing, if you've got too much work, if you've got too much work and you're bringing in you're bringing in all this work, I mean, it's a good problem to have, but some of the bigger companies out there, they might have a lot of projects on their plate right now and they might not want to... Um, they might not want to take any more work, but they don't also want to not submit proposals. Like, uh, let's say it's a larger company and they've got somebody whose their only job is to submit proposals. Well, they may be told to inflate their um, inflate the billable rates by 15, 20% or something like that to make them higher, just to maybe kind of price them out just a little bit. Um, but if they get it, fantastic. They, they just want a ton of money because they can, uh, they can get this rate. I actually saw that happen on one of the projects we were working on. I mean, they were specifically trying to. Oh, it's the last company I worked for. They were specifically trying to not win this one contract, but it was a longtime client, and they just they just raised the prices dramatically, <laughs> and they still won the contract. So I'm not really sure what happened right there. Um, Sonia, you mentioned uh, um, you mentioned having experience with that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I did it on my last project yeah. uh, proposal actually. So on this on this particular proposal, um, it's it was for the U.S. Forest Service. Uh, basically what I did was there were, were, there was one segment, they had broken it into two different projects, right? So this one contract that could be broken into two separate contracts, but they just announced it all on, all on one Mm -hmm. announcement. So what we normally do is you can bid on a portion of it, or you can bid on both of it if you want to be considered, Mm -hmm. right? So what I did was there was one portion of the project that I wanted to work on. Um, it was a larger portion. I didn't bid on it because it was larger. I bid on it because we had experience in that area recording the sites that they wanted to have revisited. We knew the area. We knew what was going on. Uh, so, uh, so we bid on that portion and we bid it competitively. But we we also wanted to see it to to be responsive. Um, but we did in in fact raise our rates on that one because we didn't want to win both. Right. And in fact, in the in the uh, cover letter that I sent to uh, the contracting officer, I actually said we are bidding on both. If we happen to be the low bidder on either one of the projects, either or both of the projects, we only want to be awarded one. Mm-hmm. We prefer this one over the other one for the following reasons. And so. Uh, if you, I mean, if they wanted us, if we were in fact the low bidder on the other contract and they wanted us, it was just going to cost more to get it done because then I'd have, you know, 20 people out in the field instead of 10. Right. You know, that sort of thing. So yeah. getting 20 people is not easy. <laughs> getting no. 10 people isn't easy either, but, you know, that, that's, how you, that's how you work it. Well, and managing 20 so, people is not easy. So Exactly. So, so yeah. there's this, there's what I like to call a hassle factor in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you can actually raise your rates, and we can talk about this a little bit later if we want to. But because there's certain portions of the contract, or maybe the client, or uh, or or any other issue, that's just considered a little bit more of a hassle than than other portions or other contracts. Right. So lots of different reasons to raise rates. Right. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's take this one to break, and then we'll come back and talk about. Uh, a little more about where that number actually comes from uh, and some other things related to billable rates and possibly um, moving on into the different types of positions and, and how those affect the billable rate. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. 
Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Okay, welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 120. And we were talking about billable rates and what that means and how those break down. So I mentioned at the end of the last segment, and then Sonia uh, provided some great examples on why you would want to increase your billable rates. But what I didn't, uh, what, I, what I don't know was fully mentioned, and I just want to say it again here so people understand, um, CRM archaeologists, uh, CRM archaeology companies, uh, you know, sure, for all the nice, warm, fuzzy feelings are in the business of serum archaeology to do good for the world and to preserve resources. But they're also in business to make money because this is America. And, you know, if you're not running a business that's making money, then you're not actually running a business uh, in a lot of cases, especially a for-profit business. So, or you won't be for long. Let's just put it that way. So because they do have a desire to actually make an income and to make profit on these projects, even if it's a small profit, part of what's in that billable rate is profit built in okay um profit built into that uh you know project or uh, or just the company as a whole so one of the ways you can adjust your bill of rates is to actually adjust them down like if you're not getting enough work or if you're trying to secure work for a, a short period or if you're trying to secure a new client or something like that you might adjust that billable rate and hopefully this is a big hope um you adjust out of your profit and you just say i'm gonna you know, I'm going to take no profit on this one for a little while. And and uh, that's right. Sonia mentioned in the background, the low bidder episode we did last time. Go listen to that. That's one of the things you can do. But this is where you would adjust that. You would adjust that in your billable rates. Hopefully, you don't adjust that in other places like employee benefits, security, pay, things like that. You're not just hiring cheaper people. Things like those are all things that can be done to lower the cost of a project, but not things that you want to do. You need to if you need to do it, it should be considered a, a last-ditch effort kind of thing for one reason or another, whether you're keeping your company alive or trying to win a new project or whatever, and then you uh, you reduce that out of your profit just for this one project and then you know bring it back up. So that's just one way you can do that. Doug, you've got a comment on this. I, w- I would just like to comment and say that not all CRM companies are for-profit entities or businesses. For sure. Um, but that doesn't mean they don't run like businesses. So you know, it's, it's pretty rare, but when CRM started out in the States, um, you ended up with lots of universities, um, having units and having companies Mm -hmm. and they still do have quite a few of those. They, when they make profit and if you're a nonprofit making profit, that goes back into your charitable aims. Um, and so you still do have to run your company like a business, but, um, not everyone's looking to put that back into a shareholder or a company boss doesn't mean that they're not looking to quote unquote have a surplus or a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a comment to say that, you know, that, that there are other types of companies out there other than for profits. Um, but they all do, as you're talking about, Chris need to at least make, make even or make some sort of a surplus. <laughs> yeah. 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 They have to stay in business. They have to pay their bills. So you have to, you have to make something and surplus, like actually some of the, the highest quarter unquote profits, um, I've seen having done, you know, profiling the profession and stuff like that actually comes from charities. Mm-hmm. So charities can actually make a, a pretty large surplus that they then, uh, plow back into charitable aims. Um, but you know, Back to your point, Chris, is you know, they're still trying to make some sort of surplus. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd just like to make that distinction that you know, just working for a charity doesn't mean you don't have to worry about a surplus. <laughs> right. Yeah, the second company I ever worked for was actually the Archaeological Historical Conservancy down in Miami. Actually, they were out of uh, just north of Miami, I think, in Dade County. Um, but uh, it was... Uh, yeah, I, I I got there just before Christmas, like a week before they had their their Christmas party, their Christmas like luau kind of thing that they had out on this beach, and uh, we were all handed a, a card that they had created based on the Miami Circle because they had a big a big deal with that, um, and inside this Christmas card that they had made was a hundred dollar bill, <laughs> and they they were handing them out as bonuses to all the crew members, even the people that started within the last week, uh, because they were they were running up against somewhat of a surplus at the end of the year, and uh, that was one of the ways that they could reduce their cash load was to uh, to give everybody bonuses. So um, anyway, yeah, you're totally right. Uh, there are 
there are not-for-profit or non-profit companies out there doing CRM archaeology, but they're definitely they're definitely fewer them than the uh, than the for-profit traditional business model. Sonia, you had a comment on this? Yeah. I, I'd like to add that uh, it takes money to make money. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for those of you interested in starting your own businesses, uh, remember that uh, remember that little phrase, it takes money to make money. Mm-hmm. Profit is used for more than just uh, owners skimming off the cream. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I have only used profit to benefit my employees mm-hmm. um, using uh, using uh, what I call profit sharing. Uh, it, as Chris said a little bit earlier, it helps us lower our cash load at the end of the year. So once January 1st hits, we don't pay as much tax on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it drops us into a lower, uh, a lower um, tax category. Right. Um, additionally, uh, profit is used to grow a company as well. So, for example, right now, um, we're we're using much of what we have taken in profit over the last couple of years and throwing it at two large projects that are running concurrently in order to grow and to do a, a good job so that these clients have their 100% faith in us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also used for reserve. Um, uh, the the money that is that is taken in in profit can be set aside in an account that can be used uh, for, say, you get a million-dollar project and all of a sudden you need 40 archaeologists, mm-hmm. you know, that's a lot of cash uh, and a lot of cash flow running through your uh, your accounts each month, So just in labor. So while you're waiting for the company to pay you back for what you're invoicing, you still have to pay your employees. So... Don't think that just because you know a company's making you know ten or fifteen percent profit, um, that that they are actually just skimming cream off the top. The company owners, mm-hmm. they are actually setting money aside to help grow their business and to help make sure that you get paid on time, in order or, or when big projects come through and lots of staff um, happen. Right. So there's always something unexpected that happens. So we want to make sure we have cash in reserve. Yeah. So keep that in mind. It takes money to make money. And in order to grow, in order to pay people, you need to set aside funds in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And additionally, you use that profit for, uh, sometimes you'll use it for uh, huge proposals. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why we're using profit that goes above and beyond what's in your, what's put into your standard uh, standard multiplier or your standard billing rate. Right. Profit doesn't mean just making your Tesla payment, does it, Sonia? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have a Tesla, I swear. I don't. Like, <laughs> we're all going to have Teslas before the end of this podcast is over. That's really the only goal. Um, and it better be the really big Teslas. I know, too, right? The really nice ones, not the POS yeah. ones that are no, coming no. out. No, the little $30,000 ones. For the yeah. common man Tesla, we don't want that. We don't yeah. want that. <laughs> um, so, so we keep talking about uh, using the billable rate uh, to, uh, you know, increasing or decreasing that to win or intentionally lose project in some cases. Let's talk about billable rates from a project management standpoint, um, because I want to, I want to bring up, you know, there's, there's, I, I think it's really great that we're having this discussion because enough people in this position that are either project managers or maybe even crew chiefs or field directors, whoever's out there in the field that's really directly responsible for spending this money. And by spending the money, I mean, you know, managing their crews efficiently every time they forget something out in the field and had four people have to drive back out an hour to get it and drive back. Uh, that just affected the cost of your project, um, whether you like it or not. That was that was in there, and so those those types of contingencies where everything doesn't run smoothly. And who, how many of us have been on a project that lasted longer than a few days that uh, that ran a hundred percent smoothly with a hundred percent efficiency? Probably none of us. Um, so those kinds of things have to be built into this billable rate, and those are typically profit. And the more efficient you are, the more um, the more, I guess, I guess efficient is the best word. The more efficient you are, the more of that 
profit you get to keep. Um, and, and then the more you screw up, the more you're, uh, you know, the more you're, <laughs> you're taking hit to that, the, the less likely you're going to be asked in, in that position uh, onto another project. And all those things are kind of factored into there because companies are running at pretty tight margins and margins just mean the, the difference between cost and, and profit there, the money that you're taking home and putting in the bank. Companies are running pretty tight on that line. And also keep in mind that most companies, depending on how they're structured, but most companies, even the people at the top, are getting a paycheck every two weeks. Um, unless they're set up like an LLC like mine, um, then the owner just kind of takes an owner draw. That can kind of be a little wishy-washy. I could actually just take all the money out of the account if I wanted to because that's how that's set up. But if you're incorporated, then everybody, everybody in that company is taking a paycheck. So if you make more money, that just goes into the company's bank account. Now, that's not to have a conversation about bonuses and things like that. Um, those do happen. But um, as far as paycheck goes, you're not just going to get like a, a bigger paycheck um, because you made more money. But that being said, I want to bring Bill and um, Stephen into the conversation as uh, more as project managers and, and and PI type people that have written proposals and and had to really use these rates that they were probably handed down by other departments, but use them in a way that uh, on projects where you know you have to find ways to um, to not necessarily cut costs but use the cost you're given in the most efficient manner. Bill, you've worked for some some pretty good sized companies and you've written. Uh, proposals before. What are your experiences dealing with these rates? Have you ever been told that you can adjust or change them, or you've got a pretty tight, uh, pretty tight limits to work within? And, and then how'd you do that? Um, so on, uh, yeah, I do have quite a bit of experience on the receiving end of this whole process. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, you end up in a situation sometimes where, uh, you know, I know it's complicated and everything, but you end up in a situation where. The project, uh, you know, I would feel like sometimes it was horribly scoped because of the amount of work that we were supposed to somehow accomplish within the boundaries of the budget or scope of work that I was being given. And, you know, sometimes I just, we couldn't do it. We had to tell them, you know, hey, it's not because we don't know what we're doing. It's because just this is an impossible job. This job has been scoped so poorly. And I, and, and I understand and I always understood that there was a lot of behind the scenes machinations and that's the reason why I was the one who was being forced to come pull off these extraordinary projects with like, you know, nearly impossible budgets. Right. <laughs> but the other thing that I would over, over time after I started to realize that I actually played a role in it. Right. Mm -hmm. So as the person who's on the ground, the crew chief or whatever, if the project is, you know, almost impossible to finish, uh, by you finishing that thing properly, that just gives them fuel to make it even more difficult, right? So if you, I'm not saying that you should not do your job or whatever, but if it was impossible, you needed to just be honest right away so that they would know how much money they were going to lose or, you know, how to proceed, you know, how you were going to finish your job, not just to cover your ass, but for them to understand that this is horribly scoped. We can't dig that many probes or we found way more sites in this area than you ever budgeted for. You're going to have to ask for either a um, contract modification or something else, or we're just going to lose money on this one because it's just not happening. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, when you did get enough time, you needed to um, kind of mentally remember about how much time it took for you to do that project so that you could help with the scope of work planning the next time. So I guess the long story is um, if you're even if you're not the one who's directly creating the budget, you need to be mindful of the amount of effort and how many hours you're putting in and what's going on so that you can give ac accurate recommendations because it's assumed that as you do more projects, you're going to move higher in the whole hierarchy. And one day you will be the one who is trying to do the scope of works or trying to figure out how to get projects competitively priced. And that knowledge of what you learned over those years of doing all those projects, that's really going to come in handy. And, and that's really where I, I mean, I wasn't in charge of uh, setting the rates or even making any kind of adjustments, but I definitely had a lot of input on the uh, level of effort. And so being able to add that knowledge, institutional knowledge on how things work, that was, you know, a really important thing. Yeah. How often, Bill, were you, I guess, in charge of or aware of at least looking at the actual 
um, the actual budget as it flowed throughout the project, like entering numbers in and, uh, you know, people's hours, basically people's hours and any other costs, and then watching that budget number come down? Or were you just told, hey, you're, you're close or you're not close or, or you know, don't spend so much money? <laughs> so what would end up happening is I would figure out a budget based on some formula that they were letting me have access to. Mm-hmm. And, and then there would be a mystery that would take that information and then it would go into the top minds and they would put together <laughs> another budget based on the reality of how much overhead we had to have, right? Mm-hmm. So there was this ideal rubric of how many hours it would cost to survey this amount of land or how many how, how many shovel probes a person can dig in a day and stuff. But then just like you guys were talking about them maybe needing to add on more overhead to help other people or... You know, this was a project that they were going to have someone from the outside write another section that I didn't budget for a professor to help write a section or something like that. They were trying to get them in on the project or um, we were going to have to have people come from other offices that get paid more than Tucson or uh, Seattle or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I got an understanding of how many hours it was going to take to get the project done and then about how many, you know, based on that, if you have people at this level, here's how much hourly you're supposed to bill for that. And mm-hmm. then I just handed it over to my boss and who knows what they actually sent to the client. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's one thing Sonia mentioned early on was, you know, these, these, what goes into the billable rates uh, are sometimes pretty highly secretive um, overall, you know, only a few people are going to know about it. And there's lots of reasons for that because, you know, if, if everybody, if everybody down the line, knew what went into that, there's a lot of people that are not too far removed from the people controlling those billable rates that are relatively seasonal or temporary employees. And they're just going to bounce from company to company. And if they happen to bounce to another company and then rise up and get to this point, then um, you know they could tell, like, well, I know what these guys are billing and I know how we can beat them. <laughs> so it's competition. Uh, you know that's, that's definitely part of it. Um, I think we're going to talk about uh, multipliers. You guys have probably heard that term. We're going to talk about that uh, coming up and some other things to wrap up this discussion that uh, who thought we could talk this long about billable rates? You could probably write an entire book about this. But anyway, so we're going to bring all that back in and uh, and hopefully we can get uh, uh, we can get Doug back in too. We might be having some Skype issues that could be, uh, you know, hurricane or Atlantic seaboard related. So who knows what's going on, but we'll try to get all that reconnected and we'll be back in just a minute. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back on the Sierra Archaeology Podcast, episode 120, all about billable rates. And we've had a, a fantastic discussion so far, really breaking this down and uh, and going in-depth on what it means. There's one thing we haven't, we've kind of alluded to, but we haven't really talked about yet, and that is multipliers. And multipliers are tied to, uh, in, in a lot of cases, multipliers are tied to uh, how much you make per hour versus what your billable rate is. And um, as I mentioned before, I think for a smaller company, those numbers are really more closely tied to an actual multiplier. But for bigger companies and for various reasons, they might start with a multiplier and then make adjustments from there. But um, uh, Sonia, why don't you start by defining what do we mean by multiplier? What is a multiplier and how do we use it? So at, at its very simplest, a uh, multiplier is essentially the billing rate so $40 an hour mm-hmm. divided by a base wage, $15 an hour. Mm-hmm. The multiplier is for, for that example would be 2.67. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, that's a, a, a multiplier that is considered reasonably low by a medium and large sky, or very low by a large size company, almost break even for a large size company. And we're talking multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar businesses when we're talking large companies. Let's let's stop right there and take this step by step because what that actually means is that if you take your hourly rate and you multiply it by 2.67 for this particular example, that $40 an hour 
should theoretically cover all the costs associated with that project and with that company's operating expenses. So they're pulling out their building rent, they're pulling out insurance, they're pulling out taxes, they're pulling all these things out of there. And they're probably making, you know, a two, three to five percent profit, maybe at that at that rate with that multiplier. So that's what we mean by that. That's that's what all that's what that forty dollars an hour is expected to cover. Yeah, it, your your multiplier is just basically a start. It's kind of a starting point for um, for managers. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we we start. Uh, we can go up or we can go down depending on the client or the or the hassle factor or or. Um, what size business you're in, that sort of thing. Like I've been told when I was working for a multi-billion dollar corporation, I, I've been told we can go as low as a 2.1. That That is break even. That is, mm-hmm. we're not taking a loss. We're not making any profit. It is break even. Okay, no problem. But that number would be a lot lower if you were in a small business because, you know, at that point, a 2.67, that's just slightly above a common multiplier of about 2.5. They could probably go as go as low as 1.5 for break-even multiplier. Right. So again, a multiplier. If you take your base wage, you know, $15 an hour, and multiply by what the multiply multiplier is, you should get what your billing rate is. And it and that multiplier it depends on a lot of different things. So. There's a lot of things to consider about multipliers, especially when you're talking about break-even and how much profit you plan on make. Like large corporations really want to make a lot of profit. Their goal is a minimum profit of about 15%. Even Mm. medium-sized companies want to make at least 15% profit, right? right? Whereas small companies might be a little bit less than that because, you know, who? I mean, we all want to pull in the gravy, but at the same time, we we don't always want to lose contracts, <laughs> which is why medium and large size companies have a harder time bidding and and winning in certain pools of contracts. So these multipliers are very it's just a very simplified version of how you're calculating billing rate, and and like Chris said, it includes everything, not your direct expenses like per diem and hotel, um, or other like equipment that you're using. Uh, like purchasing, like out in the field, like your flagging tape. It's not. It doesn't necessarily include consumables, things that are easily lost or used while out in the field. Batteries, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. These are um, established equipment: your tablets, your vehicles, payroll taxes, insurance, um, indirect expenses, company taxes. All that stuff is included in your billing rate. Right. And and, and in that multiplier. Yeah. And it's very simple. So if you've got someone that makes seventeen dollars an hour instead of instead of uh, uh, fifteen, your b- uh, billing rate at a forty dollar uh, an uh, forty dollar an hour billing rate, all of a sudden it drops from a two point six seven to a two point three five mm-hmm. or something like you know just in a hyp- in our hypothetical here. And how so? We're not, we're not probably going to get to a conversation about different positions within the field. However. Uh, if let's say you're a field tech and the pay range for your position published by your company is twelve to fifteen dollars an hour, just to make it easy, um, and you're making twelve dollars an hour, is the multiplier? Um, do you think, in your experience, would that would their the multiplier that they're charging? You know, they're using to p- propose on projects that based on the high end of that range. It's not based on your direct salary probably because they need to have wiggle room to give you raises and and to move you up and, and around within that salary range so the multiplier is more than likely based on the high end of your salary range correct exactly exactly yeah. so if you have a, a 12 to 15 dollar an hour uh, or 12 to 16 let's say 12 to 16 dollars an hour in your field technician one category mm-hmm. field technician one is entry level uh, to a few years of experience, um, some people decide to stay in field techs, uh, field as field tech ones for an extended period of time. It just really depends on what you know job you're going after. But um, someone at entry level may make twelve dollars an hour, um, and their multiplier at a billing rate would be at a forty dollar billing rate would be like a three point three multiplier. Mm-hmm. That's pretty f- profitable. But we also want to keep that that uh, that billing rate um, within a certain kind of a buffer zone so mm-hmm. that we can give you raises within that field tech one position. So I could go up to, let's see, I think I could go up to, 
almost $18, uh, oops, uh, maybe $18 an hour. Right. Um, in, and still be able to bill you at about a $40 billing rate. I just don't make a lot of profit. You know, yeah. I being, you know, the big, the big company doesn't make a lot of profit. So uh, keep that in mind. T- payroll taxes go up. Your profit goes down um, when your billing rates, when your billing rate, uh, when you have people starting to approach the the threshold of the of the billing rate um, and the multipliers. So I, I know this sounds sort of complicated, but hopefully, you know, hopefully you guys are all really super smart and, and getting this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you start getting more advanced, there your bosses may want to push you into a field tech two position which could be more like a crew chief or an, a, 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 a more supervisory position mm-hmm. uh, because they want to get you back into a more profitable category or, or uh, title or grouping. Right. Okay. So we always build a, a range within our billing rates. That's why you'll see in a lot of uh, employment postings, uh, pay ranges between 12 and 16 or $18 an hour. Mm-hmm. Because they are putting the entire range for the field tech one category into that, and then they'll say uh, um, pay is base, is commensurate with experience and education. Right. Yeah, it's uh it's an interesting point you made about um, moving someone into a newer category because it's uh it it would actually be if they've got in their proposal, let's say they've got you know five field tech ones and three field tech twos or however they call these people if they if they take somebody and move them from a low the high end of the lower category to the low end of the upper category that's more profit for the company you get more money so you get you know you get a benefit but they also get more money because they can charge more for you because you're at the low end of this new pay range i never really thought about it that way that's kind of genius so uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it's- a it all sounds like a really big, complicated, moving, constantly variable game. And yeah. it really is. I mean, uh, there are games about bidding and putting together budgets that you right. can have for different types of contracts. It's a, it's a big, moving, dynamic process. And it's really interesting. It's probably why these really big companies have so many steps involved, um, and by step, like positions, you know, like levels of field tech and levels of crew chief and things like that. They don't, they don't call them that at the bigger companies. They might be like scientist one and scientist two or something like that. I've seen that before um, or whatever they call them. But the more steps you have, the more micro ranges you can have that you can charge your client and, and move move people in and out of and, and different things like that. So that's interesting. And, and here's the other issue. Once you hit a ceiling, mm-hmm. if you're not willing to move beyond that and take on more responsibility, you've essentially hit a ceiling. And you may need to move companies. Right. So what, if you decide that you don't want to be anything more than a field tech one and you don't want the responsibility, the responsibility to lead crews, write reports or, or prep site forms or anything like that, if you don't want to do that, eventually you're going to hit the end, the upper end of your, of your billing category, and you, there's nowhere for you to move. Right. The, the company's not trying to keep you down. The company wants to move you up, but if you don't want to do it, or if you can't mm-hmm. do it, then it, then we start having a problem. Indeed. Doug, you had a question. Uh, it's more of a comment that we could sort of discuss is um, when billing rates sort of get a bit more complicated than everything we've already discussed, um, especially with people who are self-employed or have very small companies, because um, I've seen instances where someone has done all the calculations correctly and they, you know, they figured out their entire billing rate and they've gone through the whole thing and, and they've done it right. And, or maybe they borrowed it from their previous company. Um, but actually when you're, when you're first starting out, if you tend to go self-employed, your day rate is actually going to be maybe twice of what a large company or a medium sized company will do. And that's just because people forget to bill out their day rates on, days they won't be working. So, you know, if you get a larger company, the more likely you are, some of your colleagues are going to be bringing in projects and you can be put on those projects and that they can keep you self-employed or keep you employed for that entire time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've seen way too many people go into sort of self-employed or 
you know, just start out as like a single single employee of their own company and think that they can charge the same day rates that they were charged, you know, when they were an employee, they were charging. And that really messes up a lot of people quite early in their sort of self-employed or starting out at new companies. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's one of the things I started doing first with my company before I ever hired anyone was just doing small projects. Uh, I actually kind of fell in with this other guy in California who owned a small company and him and his business partner were getting a little uh, a little too old and, and had some medical issues to be doing some stuff in the field. So I was just doing field work for them. And uh, yeah, trying to figure out my rates for that was actually really hard because I, even early on, didn't really understand what was billing building into my rate, like what, what what things were costing me. I hadn't actually broken some of that stuff down when I started factoring in my vehicle and insurance and professional insurance. Because as a as an independent, um, as a subcontractor, basically, I, I had to have professional liability, general liability. I had all these things, uh, you know, on myself and my company. And then all the other things that go into running the company on a day-to-day basis. But then again, I wasn't doing jobs like, you know, every day of the year either. So I needed to find a rate that would um, not only be competitive and, and get me the work, but also help fund me in the times that um, where I wasn't making any money, you know, where I didn't have projects and things like that. So it was uh, uh, it was an interesting time and I did a lot of things wrong, um, but then learned from those experiences. I don't know if that answered your question because I don't know if I can answer the question, but that's just my comment and experience. Sonia, what about you? Have you dealt with this at all? I know you're kind of writing about some of these things. <laughs> I write about a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I think you're right. Um, there's a, a, a lot of, a lot of um, uh, complication and especially daily rates when people calculate daily rates, they think, oh, okay, I'm just going into the field. I'm doing all this. I forgot about uh, self-employment taxes, which are awful, by the way, uh, and all the insurance issues. People don't consider that. And those those things can't just be thrown into one contract. That's kind of unfair to that, that initial client. They have to be broken apart and thrown into a standardized rate that's spread across a, a year. Mm-hmm. or across the number of employees that you expect you might have. Um, and, you know, uh, we also forget about all that, all that indirect labor, you know, right. what it's going to cost to have your accountants run things and do your taxes, what it's going to cost to have your lawyers review uh, contracts or, or build contracts for you. Um, also included in indirect is putting t- the, together the freaking proposal. If you're going to get this contract, you want to be able to recoup some cost. It's not a lot, mm-hmm. but you want to be able to recoup some cost in in proposals and marketing. I mean, there's a week every year that I go down uh, to Salt Lake City and participate in a big engineering conference. That's like three days of being there that's completely uh, unbillable time. Mm-hmm. That's got to come from somewhere. That, right. that money to pay me and to pay my my other professionals that go out and uh, to this conference with me and help. That 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 money has to come from somewhere, and what it comes from is that billing rate, whether that it be hourly or daily or weekly or monthly, whatever. You know what I mean? And then you also have to include report prep and things that may happen, but you don't know are going to happen. Like for example, losing your brakes on a mountain. And the emergency brakes on them out. You know, how do you get down? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're gonna have to tow it down, and you have to you have to throw that in there. So you have to have contingencies in play. So it, it it's a complicated it's a complicated thing, and a lot of new professionals who want to start their own businesses frequently forget these things. This is why I've always been a really huge advocate of get at least ten years of experience, and at least five of those should be in management. And you should be taking classes with the Small Business Administration and uh, local universities if you can get in on how to run businesses for realsies, not not hypothetically over at, you know at the bar each night when you're griping about how much you don't get paid. Right. You know what I mean. Right. 
So get in, go, go out, get educated, be proactive, find out uh, what billing rates are about, learn about these things, because this will help you in the long run. Right. Doug, one last question. Yeah, one last question. So um, this, you know, this is very specific to some people in CRM. So, for example, a tech, you pretty much have billable hours because you produce the same amount of work. Um, and it's not, you really can't change much of what you do as a field tech. Um, but, for example, consultancy or specialisms, uh, sometimes the value that you're giving for your work is much higher than billable rates. So I've, I've worked with a forester who had a really hard time uh, coming up with a day rate or a billable hour rate. Because when he did projects, he would save his clients millions upon millions. And so he'd charge like a very large uh, fee based off of the value he was giving. And, you know, this is not going to apply to most CRM people. But have you guys had experience where you're doing projects where it's not, you're not on lowest tender. You're not um, basically trying to, you know, beat out the, the lowest price of everyone else. So you're trying to get all your billable hours in there. Do you have experience with? breaking out of that mold and going on value-based billing and how do you do that? The, this is called a value added um, and it's not very common in our field simply because we are a, uh, an hourly based uh, service. Um, I have had a f very few situations, very few in my 17, 18 years of experience um, with this and usually this involves working your your rates or you're working your days doing what you're supposed to be doing invoicing as you invoice but if you become more um, efficient you get a you get a profit share of the project at the end of it it doesn't happen very frequently it is essentially a bonus that is provided because you've finished work early or you've done uh, a high quality work that saved time. So it's unusual. I wish people would consider doing it more. Most of what we see is actually um, is actually clients saying, if you go a day over or if you per, or if you keep us from working for an hour, we're going to bill you a million dollars. So <laughs> it's quite the opposite for it. I see that more frequently than I see benefits and incentives. So I wish it were better, um, but it's just not happening in this industry right now. Right. Okay. Well, that's all we have time for. This was a, a great discussion. Um, thanks, everybody. And I just want to say, if you guys are out there um, having these conversations in the bar at the end of the long field day or, you know, out in the parking lot on a tailgate with some PBRs, um, <laughs> Think about these questions and send them to us. And and even if even if you think you know your answer, uh, get our take on it because we've got you know five people on here that uh, have a wide range of experience and uh, and have their own questions as well and can maybe um, illuminate some information on the topic. So uh, feel free to send in your questions, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. And uh, hopefully here in a future episode, um, we'll have on our first interview from. Uh, somebody from ACRA, the American Cultural Resources Association. I messaged the newly minted president as of the recording here. It's in the last few days of Kim Redmond. She's the president of Alpine Archaeological uh, Consultants in Colorado, and she's the new president of ACRA. So we'll see if we can get her on and, and talk to somebody from ACRA and find out find out what the heck they do and what they can do for you. So keep an eye out for that in the future. Um, in the meantime, thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag crmarcpodcast or you can tag at arcpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. 
If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMARC so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. See ya. Bye. It's been so long. It's been so long. <laughs> this show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.